They stood presently amidst the Fremen on the basin floor. Jessica turned a wry smile on Paul, but spoke to Stilgar. This will be a good exchange of teachings. I hope you and your people feel no anger at our violence. It seemed necessary. You were about to make a mistake. To save one from a mistake is a gift of paradise, Stilgar said. He touched his lips with his left hand, lifted the weapon from Paul's waist with the other, tossed it to a companion. You will have your own Mauler pistol, lad, when you've earned it. Paul started to speak, hesitated, remembering his mother's teaching. Beginnings are such delicate times. My son has what weapons he needs, Jessica said. She stared at Stilgar, forcing him to think of how Paul had acquired the pistol. Stilgar glanced at the man Paul had subdued, Jamis. The man stood at one side, head lowered, breathing heavily. You are a difficult woman, Stilgar said. He held out his left hand to a companion, snapped his fingers. Kushtibakate! More Chakopsa, Jessica thought. The companion pressed two squares of gauze into Stilgar's hand. Stilgar ran them through his fingers, fixed one around Jessica's neck beneath her hood, fitted the other around Paul's neck in the same way. Now you wear the kerchief of the Baka, he said. If we become separated, you will be recognized as belonging to Stilgar's Siege. We will talk of weapons another time. He moved out through his band now, inspecting them, giving Paul's friend kit pack to one of his men to carry. Baka. Jessica thought, recognizing the religious term, Baka, the weeper. She sensed how the symbolism of the kerchiefs united this band. Why should weeping unite them? she asked herself. Stilgar came to the young girl who had embarrassed Paul, said, Jenny, take the child man under your wing. Keep him out of trouble. Cheney touched Paul's arm. Come along, child man. Paul hid the anger in his voice, said, My name is Paul. It were well you... We'll give you a name, manling, Stilgar said, in the time of the Mina, at the test of Akl. The test of reason, Jessica translated. The sudden need of Paul's ascendancy overrode all other consideration, and she barked, My son's been tested with a gomjabar. In the stillness that followed, she knew she had struck to the heart of them. There's much we don't know of each other, Stilgar said. But we tarry over long. Day sun mustn't find us in the open. He crossed to the man Paul had struck down, said, Jemis, can you travel? A grunt answered him. Surprised me he did. Twas an accident. I can travel. No accident, Stilgar said. I'll hold you responsible with Cheney for the lad's safety, Jemis. These people have my countenance. Jessica stared at the man Jamis. His was the voice that had argued with Stilgar from the rocks. His was the voice with death in it. And Stilgar had seen fit to reinforce his order with this Jamis. Stilgar flicked a testing glance across the group, motioned two men out. Lerus and Farouk, you are to hide our tracks. See that we leave no trace. Extra care. We have two with us who've not been trained. He turned, hand upheld, and aimed across the basin. In squad line with flankers. Move out. We must be at Cave of the Ridges before dawn. Jessica fell into step beside Stilgar, counting heads. 
There were forty Fremen. She and Paul made it forty-two, and she thought, they travel as a military company. Even the girl, Cheney. Paul took a place in the line behind Cheney. He had put down the black feeling at being caught by the girl. In his mind now was the memory called up by his mother's barked reminder, my son's been tested with a gomjabar. He found that his hand tingled with remembered pain. Watch where you go, Cheney hissed. Do not brush against a bush, lest you leave a thread to show our passage. Paul swallowed, nodded. Jessica listened to the sounds of the troop, hearing her own footsteps and Paul's, marvelling at the way the Fremen moved. There were forty people crossing the basin, with only the sounds natural to the place, ghostly for Lucas, their robes flitting through the shadows. Their destination was Siech Tabor, Stilgar's Siech. She turned the word over in her mind, Siech. It was a Chakobsa word, unchanged from the old hunting language out of countless centuries. Siech, a meeting place in time of danger. The profound implications of the word and the language were just beginning to register with her after the tension of their encounter. We move well, Stilgar said. With Shaihulud's favor, we'll reach Cave of the Ridges before dawn. Jessica nodded, conserving her strength, sensing the terrible fatigue she held at bay by force of will. And, she admitted it, by the force of elation. Her mind focused on the value of this troop, seeing what was revealed here about the Fremen culture. All of them, she thought. An entire culture trained to military order. What a priceless thing is here for an outcast duke. The Fremen were supreme in that quality the ancients called Spallensborgen, which is the self-imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing. From the Wisdom of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. They approached Cave of the Ridges at dawnbreak, moving through a split in the basin wall so narrow they had to turn sideways to negotiate it. Jessica saw Stilgar, detached guards in the thin dawn light, saw them for a moment as they began their scrambling climb up the cliff. Paul turned his head upward as he walked, seeing the tapestry of this planet cut in cross-section with a narrow cleft gaped toward grey-blue sky. Cheney pulled at his rope to hurry him, said, Quickly! It is already light. The men who climbed above us, where are they going? Paul whispered. The first day watch, she said. Hurry now. A guard left outside, Paul thought. Wise. But it would have been wiser still for us to approach this place in separate bands, less chance of losing the whole troop. He paused in the thought, realizing that this was guerrilla thinking and he remembered his father's fear that the Atreides might become a guerrilla house. Faster, Cheney whispered. Paul sped his steps, heard the swish of robes behind, and he thought of the words of the Sirat from Yui's tiny O.C. Bible. Paradise on my right, hell on my left, and the angel of death behind. He rolled the quotation in his mind. They rounded a corner where the passage widened. Stilgar stood at one side, motioning them into a low hole that opened at right angles. Quickly, he hissed. We're like rabbits in a cage if a patrol catches us here. 
Paul bent for the opening, followed Cheney into a cave illuminated by thin grey light from somewhere ahead. You can stand up, she said. He straightened, studied the place. A deep and wide area with domed ceiling that curved away just out of a man's hand reach. The troop spread out through shadows. Paul saw his mother come up on one side, saw her examine their companions, and he noted how she failed to blend with the Fremen even though her garb was identical. The way she moved, such a sense of power and grace. Find a place to rest and stay out of the way, child man, Cheney said. Here's food. She pressed two leaf-wrapped morsels into his hand. They reeked of spice. Stilgar came up behind Jessica, called an order to a group on the left. Get the door seal in place and see to moisture security. He turned to another Fremen. Lemiel, get glow globes. He took Jessica's arm. I wish to show you something, weirding woman. He led her around a curve of rock toward the light source. Jessica found herself looking out across the wide lip of another opening to the cave, an opening high in a cliff wall looking out across another basin about ten or twelve kilometres wide. The basin was shielded by high rock walls. Sparse clumps of plant growth were scattered around it. As she looked at the dawn-grey basin, the sun lifted over the far escarpment, illuminating a biscuit-coloured landscape of rocks and sand. And she noted how the sun of Arrakis appeared to leap over the horizon. It's because we want to hold it back, she thought. Night is safer than day. There came over her then a longing for a rainbow in this place that would never see rain. I must suppress such longings, she thought. They're a weakness. I no longer can afford weaknesses. Stilgar gripped her arm, pointed across the basin. There, there you see proper druses. She looked where he pointed, saw movement. People on the basin floor scattering at the daylight into the shadows of the opposite cliff wall. In spite of the distance, their movements were plain in the clear air. She lifted her binoculars from beneath her robe, focused the oil lenses on the distant people. Kerchiefs fluttered like a flight of multicoloured butterflies. That is home, Stilgar said. We will be there this night. He stared across the basin, tugging at his moustache. My people stayed out over late working. That means there are no patrols about. I'll signal them later, and they'll prepare for us. Your people show good discipline, Jessica said. She lowered the binoculars, saw that Stilgar was looking at them. They obey the preservation of the tribe, he said. It is the way we choose among us for a leader. The leader is the one who is strongest, the one who brings water and security. He lifted his attention to her face. She returned his stare, noted the whiteless eyes, the stained eye pits, the dust-rimmed beard and moustache, the line of the catch tube curving down from his nostrils into his still suit. Have I compromised your leadership by besting you, Stilgar? she asked. You did not call me out, he said. It's important that the leader keep the respect of his troop, she said. Isn't a one of those sand lice I cannot handle, Stilgar said. When you bested me, you bested us all. Now they hope to learn from you, the weirding way, and some are curious to see if you intend to call me out. She weighed the implications. By besting you in formal battle? He nodded. I'd advise you against this. 
because they'd not follow you. You're not of the sand. They saw this in our night's passage. Practical people, she said. True enough. He glanced at the basin. We know our needs, but not many are thinking deep thoughts now this close to home. We've been out over long arranging to deliver our spice quota to the free traders for the cursed guild. May their faces be forever black. Jessica stopped in the act of turning away from him, looked back up into his face. The guild? What has the guild to do with your spice? It's Liet's command, Stilgar said. We know the reason, but the taste of it sours us. We bribe the guild with a monstrous payment in spice to keep our skies clear of satellites and such, that none may spy what we do to the face of Arrakis. She weighed out her words, remembering that Paul had said this must be the reason Arikeen skies were clear of satellites. And what is it you do to the face of Arrakis that must not be seen? We change it, slowly but with certainty, to make it fit for human life. Our generation will not see it, nor our children, nor our children's children, nor the grandchildren of their children, but it will come. He stared with veiled eyes out over the basin. Open water, and tall green plants, and people walking freely without still suits. So that's the dream of this Liet Kynes, she thought. And she said, Bribes are dangerous. They have a way of growing larger and larger. They grow, he said, but the slow way is the safe way. Jessica turned looked out over the basin, trying to see it the way Stilgar was seeing it in his imagination. She saw only the greyed, mustard stain of distant rocks, and a sudden hazy motion in the sky above the cliffs. Ah, Stilgar said. She thought at first it must be a patrol vehicle, then realized it was a mirage, another landscape hovering over the desert, sand and a distant wavering of greenery, and in the middle distance a long worm travelling the surface with what looked like Fremen robes fluttering on its back. The mirage faded. It would be better to ride, Stilgar said, but we cannot permit a maker into this basin. Thus we must walk again tonight. Maker, their word for worm, she thought. She measured the import of his words, the statement that they could not permit a worm into this basin. She knew what she had seen in the mirage, Fremen riding on the back of a giant worm. It took heavy control not to betray her shock at the implications. We must be getting back to the others, Stilgar said, else my people may suspect I dally with you. Some already are jealous that my hands tasted your loveliness when we struggled last night in Tuono Basin. That will be enough of that, Jessica snapped. No offence, Stilgar said and his voice was mild. Women among us are not taken against their will. And with you, he shrugged, even that convention isn't required. You will keep in mind that I was a duke's lady, she said, but her voice was calmer. As you wish, he said. It's time to seal off this opening, to permit relaxation of still-suit discipline. My people need to rest in comfort this day. Their families will give them little rest on the morrow. Silence fell between them. Jessica stared out into the sunlight. 
She had heard what she had heard in Stilgar's voice, the unspoken offer of more than his countenance. Did he need a wife? She realized she could step into that place with him. It would be one way to end conflict over tribal leadership, female properly aligned with male. But what of Paul, then? Who could tell yet what rules of parenthood prevailed here? And what of the unborn daughter she had carried these few weeks? What of a dead duke's daughter? And she permitted herself to face fully the significance of this other child growing within her, to see her own motives in permitting the conception. She knew what it was. She had succumbed to that profound drive shared by all creatures who are faced with death, the drive to seek immortality through progeny. The fertility drive of the species had overpowered them. Jessica glanced at Stilgar, saw that he was studying her, waiting. A daughter born here to a woman wed to such a one as this man. What would be the fate of such a daughter? she asked herself. Would he try to limit the necessities that a Bene Gesserit must follow? Stilgar cleared his throat and revealed then that he understood some of the questions in her mind. What is important for a leader is that which makes him a leader. It is the needs of his people. If you teach me your powers, there may come a day when one of us must challenge the other. I would prefer some alternative. There are several alternatives? she asked. The Sayadina, he said. Our reverend mother is old. Their reverend mother? Before she could probe this, he said, I do not necessarily offer myself as mate. This is nothing personal, for you are beautiful and desirable. But should you become one of my women, that might lead some of my young men to believe that I am too much concerned with pleasures of the flesh and not enough concerned with the tribe's needs. Even now they listen to us and watch us. A man who weighs his decisions, who thinks of consequences, she thought. There are those among my young men who have reached the age of wild spirits, he said. They must be eased through this period. I must leave no great reasons around for them to challenge me, because I would have to maim and kill among them. This is not the proper course for a leader if it can be avoided with honour. A leader, you see, is one of the things that distinguishes a mob from a people. He maintains the level of individuals. Too few individuals and a people reverts to a mob. His words, the depth of their awareness, the fact that he spoke as much to her as to those who secretly listened, forced her to re-evaluate him. He has stature, she thought. Where did he learn such inner balance? The law that demands our form of choosing a leader is a just law, Stilgar said but it does not follow that justice is always the thing a people needs. What we truly need now is time to grow and prosper, to spread our force over more land. What is his ancestry? she wondered. Whence comes such breeding? She said, Stilgar, I underestimated you. Such was my suspicion, he said. Each of us apparently underestimated the other, she said. I should like an end to this, he said. I should like friendship with you, and trust. I should like that respect for each other which grows in the breast without demand for the huddlings of sex. I understand, she said. Do you trust me? I hear your sincerity. Among us, he said, the Sayadina, 
When they are not, the formal leaders hold a special place of honor. They teach. They maintain the strength of God here. He touched his breast. Now I must probe this reverend mother mystery, she thought. And she said, You spoke of your reverend mother, and I've heard words of legend and prophecy. It is said that a Bene Gesserit and her offspring hold the key to our future, he said. Do you believe I am that one? She watched his face, thinking, The young reed dies so easily. Beginnings are times of such great peril. We do not know, he said. She nodded, thinking, He's an honorable man. He wants a sign from me, but he'll not tip fate by telling me the sign. Jessica turned her head, stared down into the basin at the golden shadows, the purple shadows, the vibrations of dust mote air across the lip of their cave. Her mind was filled suddenly with feline prudence. She knew the cant of the Missionaria Protectiva, knew how to adapt the techniques of legend and fear and hope to her emergency needs, but she sensed wild changes here, as though someone had been in among these Fremen and capitalized on the Missionaria Protectiva's imprint. Stilgar cleared his throat. She sensed his impatience, knew that the day moved ahead and men waited to seal off this opening. This was a time for boldness on her part and she realized what she needed, some Dar al-Hikman, some school of translation that would give her Adab, she whispered. Her mind felt as though it had rolled over within her. She recognized the sensation with a quickening of pulse. Nothing in all the Bene Gesserit training carried such a signal of recognition. It could be only the Adab, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself. She gave herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. Ibn Kertaiba, she said, as far as the spoil where the dust ends. She reached out an arm from her robe, seeing Stilgar's eyes go wide. She heard a rustling of many robes in the background. I see a Fremen with a book of examples, she intoned. He reads to Alat, the son whom he defied and subjugated. He reads to the sadhus of the trial, and this is what he reads. Mine enemies are like green blades eaten down, that did stand in the path of the tempest. Hast thou not seen what our Lord did? He sent the pestilence among them that did lay schemes against us. They are like birds scattered by the huntsmen. Their schemes are like pellets of poison that every mouth rejects. A trembling passed through her. She dropped her arm. Back to her from the inner cave's shadows came a whispered response of many voices. Their works have been overturned. The fire of God mount over thy heart, she said, and she thought, now it goes in the proper channel. The fire of God set alight, came the response. She nodded. Thine enemies shall fall, she said. Bilal Kaifa, they answered. In the sudden hush, Stilgar bowed to her. Sayadina, he said, if the Shai Hulud grant, then you may yet pass within to become a reverend mother. Pass within, she thought, an odd way of putting it. 
but the rest of it fitted into the cant well enough, and she felt a cynical bitterness at what she had done. Our missionaria protectiva seldom fails. A place was prepared for us in this wilderness. The prayer of the Salat has carved out our hiding place. Now I must play the part of Alia, the friend of God. Sayadina to rogue peoples who've been so heavily imprinted with our Bene Gesserit soothsay, they even call their chief priestesses reverend mothers. Paul stood beside Cheney in the shadows of the inner cave. He could still taste the morsel she had fed him, bird flesh and grain bound with spice honey and encased in a leaf. In tasting it he had realized he never before had eaten such a concentration of spice essence, and there had been a moment of fear. He knew what this essence could do to him, the spice change that pushed his mind into prescient awareness. Bilal Gaifa, Cheney whispered. He looked at her, seeing the awe with which the Fremen appeared to accept his mother's words. Only the man called Jamis seemed to stand aloof from the ceremony, holding himself apart with arms folded across his breast. Dui yakain manje, Cheney whispered. Dui pumain manje. I have two eyes. I have two feet. And she stared at Paul with a look of wonder. Paul took a deep breath, trying to still the tempest within him. His mother's words had locked onto the working of the spice essence, and he had felt her voice rise and fall within him like the shadows of an open fire. Through it all he had sensed the edge of cynicism in her. He knew her so well. But nothing could stop this thing that had begun with a morsel of food. Terrible purpose. He sensed it, the race consciousness that he could not escape. There was the sharpened clarity, the inflow of data, the cold precision of his awareness. He sank to the floor, sitting with his back against rock, giving himself up to it. Awareness flowed into that timeless stratum where he could view time, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future, the winds of the past. The one-eyed vision of the past, the one-eyed vision of the present, and the one-eyed vision of the future all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time become space. There was danger, he felt, of overrunning himself, and he had to hold on to his awareness of the present, sensing the blurred deflection of experience, the flowing moment, the continual solidification of that which is into the perpetual was. In grasping the present, he felt for the first time the massive steadiness of time's movement everywhere complicated by shifting currents, waves, surges and counter-surges like surf against rocky cliffs. It gave him a new understanding of his prescience, and he saw the source of blind time, the source of error in it, with an immediate sensation of fear. The prescience, he realized, was an illumination that incorporated the limits of what it revealed, at once a source of accuracy and meaningful error. A kind of Heisenberg indeterminacy intervened. The expenditure of energy that revealed what he saw changed what he saw. And what he saw was a time nexus within this cave, a boiling of possibilities focused here, wherein the most minute action, the wink of an eye, a careless word, a misplaced grain of sand moved a gigantic lever across the known universe. 
he saw violence with the outcomes subject to so many variables that his slightest movement created vast shiftings in the pattern. The vision made him want to freeze into immobility, but this too was action with its consequences. The countless consequences lines fanned out from this cave, and along most of these consequence lines he saw his own dead body with blood flowing from a gaping knife wound. My father, the Padishah Emperor, was 72, yet looked no more than 35 the year he encompassed the death of Duke Leto and gave Arrakis back to the Harkonnens. He seldom appeared in public wearing other than a Sardaukar uniform and a Bursag's black helmet with the Imperial Lion in gold upon its crest. The uniform was an open reminder of where his power lay. He was not always that blatant, though. When he wanted, he could radiate charm and sincerity. But I often wonder in these later days if anything about him was as it seemed. I think now he was a man fighting constantly to escape the bars of an invisible cage. You must remember that he was an emperor, fatherhead of a dynasty that reached back into the dimmest history. But we denied him a legal son. Was this not the most terrible defeat a ruler ever suffered? My mother obeyed her sister superiors, whether Lady Jessica disobeyed. Which of them was the stronger? History already has answered. In my father's house, by the Princess Irulan. Jessica awakened in cave darkness, sensing the stir of Fremen around her, smelling the acrid still-suit odour. Her inner time sense told her it would soon be night outside, but the cave remained in blackness, shielded from the desert by the plastic hoods that trapped their body moisture within this space. She realized that she had permitted herself the utterly relaxing sleep of great fatigue, and this suggested something of her own unconscious assessment on personal security within Stilgar's troop. She turned in the hammock that had been fashioned of her robe, slipped her feet to the rock floor and into her desert boots. I must remember to fasten the boots slip fashion to help my still suit's pumping action, she thought. There are so many things to remember. She could still taste their morning meal, the morsel of bird flesh and grain bound within a leaf with spice honey, and it came to her that the use of time was turned around here. Night was the day of activity, and day was the time of rest. Night conceals. Night is safest. She unhooked her robe from its hammock pegs in a rock alcove, fumbled with the fabric in the dark until she found the top, slipped into it. How to get a message out to the Bene Gesserit, she wondered. They would have to be told of the two strays in Arakeen's sanctuary. Glow globes came alight farther into the cave. She saw people moving there. Paul among them already dressed and with his hood thrown back to reveal the aquiline Atreides profile. He had acted so strangely before they retired, she thought. Withdrawn. He was like one come back from the dead, not yet fully aware of his return, his eyes half shut and glassy with the inward stare. It made her think of his warning about the spice-impregnated diet. Addictive. Are there side effects? she wondered. He said it had something to do with his prescient faculty, but he has been strangely silent about what he sees.
Stilgar came from shadows to her right, crossed to the group beneath the glow globes. She marked how he fingered his beard and the watchful, cat-stalking look of him. Abrupt fear shot through Jessica as her senses awakened to the tensions visible in the people gathered around Paul, the stiff movements, the ritual positions. They have my countenance, Stilgar rumbled. Jessica recognized the man Stilgar confronted, Jameis. She saw then the rage in Jameis, the tight set of his shoulders. Jameis, the man Paul bested, she thought. You know the rules, Stilgar, Jameis said. Who knows it better, Stilgar asked. And she heard the tone of placation in his voice, the attempt to smooth something over. I choose the combat, Jameis growled. Jessica sped across the cave, grasped Stilgar's arm. What is this? she asked. It's the Amtal rule, Stilgar said. Jameis is demanding the right to test your part in the legend. She must be championed, Jameis said. If her champion wins, that's the truth in it. But it's said, he glanced across the press of people, that she'd need no champion from the Fremen, which can mean only that she brings her own champion. He's talking of single combat with Paul, Jessica thought. She released Stilgar's arm, took a half-step forward. I'm always my own champion, she said. The meaning's simple enough for... You will not tell us our ways, Jameis snapped. Not without more proof than I've seen. Stilgar could have told you what to say last morning. He could have filled your mind full of the coddle, and you could have bird-talked it to us, hoping to make a false way among us. I can take him, Jessica thought. But that might conflict with the way they interpret the legend. And again she wondered at the way the Missionaria Protectiva's work had been twisted on this planet. Stilgar looked at Jessica, spoke in a low voice, but one designed to carry to the crowd's fringe. Jamis is one to hold a grudge, Sayadina. Your son bested him, and— It was an accident, Jamis roared. There was rich force at Tuono Basin, and I'll prove it now. And I've bested him myself, Stilgar continued. He seeks by this Tahadi challenge to get back at me as well. There's too much of violence in Jameis for him ever to make a good leader. Too much goffler, the distraction. He gives his mouth to the rules and his heart to the safa, the turning away. No, he could never make a good leader. I've preserved him this long because he's useful in a fight as such, but when he gets this carving anger on him, he's dangerous to his own society. Stilgar, Jameis rumbled. And Jessica saw what Stilgar was doing, trying to enrage Jameis to take the challenge away from Paul. Stilgar faced Jameis, and again Jessica heard the soothing in the rumbling voice. Jameis, he's but a boy. He's... You named him a man, Jameis said. His mother says he's been through the Gormjabar. He's full-fleshed and with a surfeit of water. The ones who carried their packs say there's liturgons of water in it. Liturgons, and us sipping our catch pockets the instant they show dew sparkle. Stilgar glanced at Jessica. Is this true? Is there water in your pack? Yes. Liturgons of it? Two liturgons. What was intended with this wealth? Wealth? she thought. She shook her head, feeling the coldness in his voice. Where I was born... Water fell from the sky and ran over the land in wide rivers, she said. 
There were oceans of it so broad you could not see the other shore. I've not been trained to your water discipline. I've never before had to think of it this way. A sighing gasp arose from the people around them. Water fell from the sky? It ran over the land? Did you know there are those among us who've lost from their catch pockets by accident and will be in sore trouble before we reach Tabor this night? How could I know? Jessica shook her head. If they're in need, give them water from our pack. Is that what you intended with this wealth? I intended it to save life, she said. Then we accept your blessing, Sayadina. You'll not buy us off with water, Jamis growled, nor will you anger me against yourself, Stilgar. I see you trying to make me call you out before I've proved my words. Stilgar faced Jamis. Are you determined to press this fight against a child, Jamis? His voice was low, venomous. She must be championed, even though she has my countenance. I invoke the Amtal rule, Jamis said. It's my right. Stilgar nodded. Then, if the boy does not carve you down, you'll answer to my knife afterward. And this time I'll not hold back the blade as I've done before. You cannot do this thing, Jessica said. Paul's just— You must not interfere, Sayadina, Stilgar said. Oh, I know you can take me, and therefore can take anyone among us, but you cannot best us all united. This must be. It is the Omtal rule. Jessica fell silent, staring at him in the green light of the glow-globes, seeing the demoniacal stiffness that had taken over his expression. She shifted her attention to Jamis, saw the brooding look to his brows, and thought, I should have seen that before. He broods. He's the silent kind, one who works himself up inside. I should have been prepared. If you harm my son, she said, you'll have me to meet. I call you out now. I'll carve you into a joint of— Mother, Paul stepped forward, touched her sleeve. Perhaps if I explain to Jamis how— Explain? Jamis sneered. Paul fell silent, staring at the man. He felt no fear of him. Jamis appeared clumsy in his movements, and he had fallen so easily in their night encounter on the sand. But Paul still felt the nexus boiling of this cave, still remembered the prescient visions of himself, dead under a knife. There had been so few avenues of escape for him in that vision. Stilgar said, Sayadina, you must step back now, where— Stop calling her Sayadina, Jamis said. That's yet to be proved. So she knows the prayer. What's that? Every child among us knows it. He has talked enough, Jessica thought. I've the key to him. I could immobilize him with a word. She hesitated. But I cannot stop them all. You will answer to me, then, Jessica said. And she pitched her voice in a twisting tone with a little whine in it and a catch at the end. Jamis stared at her, fright visible on his face. I'll teach you the agony, she said in the same tone. Remember that as you fight. You'll have agony such as will make the Gomjabar a happy memory by comparison. You will writhe with your entire— She tries a spell on me, Jamis gasped. He put his clenched right fist beside his ear. I invoke the silence on her. So be it then, Stilgar said. He cast a warning glance at Jessica. If you speak again, Sayadina, we'll know it's your witchcraft and you'll be forfeit. He nodded for her to step back. 
Jessica felt hands pulling her, helping her back, and she sensed they were not unkindly. She saw Paul being separated from the throng, the elfin-faced Cheney whispering in his ear as she nodded toward Jamis. A ring formed within the troop. More glow-globes were brought, and all of them tuned to the yellow band. Jamis stepped into the ring, slipped out of his robe, and tossed it to someone in the crowd. He stood there in a cloudy, grey slickness of still-suit that was patched and marked by tucks and gathers. For a moment he bent with his mouth to his shoulder, drinking from a catch-pocket tube. Presently he straightened, peeled off, and detached the suit, handed it carefully into the crowd. He stood waiting, clad in loincloth and some tight fabric over his feet, a crisp knife in his right hand. Jessica saw the girl-child Cheney helping Paul, saw her press a crisp knife handle into his palm, saw him heft it, testing the weight and balance. And it came to Jessica that Paul had been trained in prana and bindu, the nerve and the fibre, that he had been taught fighting in a deadly school, his teachers, men like Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, men who were legends in their own lifetimes. The boy knew the devious ways of the Bene Gesserit, and he looked supple and confident. But he's only fifteen, she thought, and he has no shield. I must stop this. Somehow there must be a way to— She looked up, saw Stilgar watching her. You cannot stop it, he said. You must not speak. She put a hand over her mouth, thinking, I've planted fear in Jameis's mind. It'll slow him some, perhaps. If I could only pray, truly pray. Paul stood alone now just into the ring, clad in the fighting trunks he'd worn under his still suit. He held a Chris knife in his right hand. His feet were bare against the sand-gritted rock. Idaho had warned him time and again, when in doubt of your surface, bare feet are best. And there were Cheney's words of instruction, still in the front of his consciousness. Jameis turns to the right with his knife after a parry. It's a habit in him we've all seen, and he'll aim for the eyes to catch a blink in which to slash you. And he can fight either hand, look out for a knife shift. But strongest in Paul, so that he felt it with his entire body, was training, and the instinctual reaction mechanism that had been hammered into him day after day, hour after hour on the practice floor. Gurney Halleck's words were there to remember. The good knife fighter thinks on point and blade and shearing guard simultaneously. The point can also cut. The blade can also stab. The shearing guard can also trap your opponent's blade. Paul glanced at the Chris knife. There was no shearing guard, only the slim, round ring of the handle with its raised lips to protect the hand. And even so, he realized that he did not know the breaking tension of this blade, did not even know if it could be broken. Jamis began sidling to the right along the edge of the ring opposite Paul. Paul crouched, realizing then that he had no shield, but was trained to fighting with its subtle field around him, trained to react on defense with utmost speed, while his attack would be timed to the controlled slowness necessary for penetrating the enemy's shield. In spite of constant warning from his trainers not to depend on the shield's mindless blunting of attack speed, he knew that shield awareness was part of him. Jamis called out in ritual challenge. May thy knife chip and shatter! This knife will break then, Paul thought. 
He cautioned himself that Jamis also was without shield, but the man wasn't trained to its use, had no shield-fighter inhibitions. Paul stared across the ring at Jamis. The man's body looked like knotted whipcord on a dried skeleton. His Chris knife shone milky yellow in the light of the glow globes. Fear coursed through Paul. He felt suddenly alone and naked, standing in dull yellow light within this ring of people. Prescience had fed his knowledge with countless experiences, hinted at the strongest currents of the future and the strings of decision that guided them, but this was the real now. This was death hanging on an infinite number of minuscule mischances. Anything could tip the future here, he realized. Someone coughing in the troop of watchers, a distraction, a variation in a glow-globe's brilliance, a deceptive shadow. I'm afraid, Paul told himself. And he circled warily opposite Jamis, repeating silently to himself the Bene Gesserit litany against fear. Fear is the mind-killer. It was a cool bath washing over him. He felt muscles untie themselves, become poised and ready. I'll sheath my knife in your blood, Jamis snarled, and in the middle of the last word he pounced. Jessica saw the motion, stifled an outcry. Where the man struck there was only empty air, and Paul stood now behind Jamis with a clear shot at the exposed back. Now, Paul, now, Jessica screamed it in her mind. Paul's motion was slowly timed, beautifully fluid, but so slow it gave Jamis the margin to twist away backing and turning to the right. Paul withdrew, crouching low. First, you must find my blood, he said. Jessica recognized the shield-fighter timing in her son, and it came over her what a two-edged thing that was. The boy's reactions were those of youth, and trained to a peak these people had never seen. But the attack was trained too, and conditioned by the necessities of penetrating a shield barrier, a shield would repel too fast a blow, admit only the slowly deceptive counter. It needed control and trickery to get through a shield. Does Paul see it? she asked herself. He must. Again, Jamis attacked, ink-dark eyes glaring, his body a yellow blur under the glow globes, and again Paul slipped away to return too slowly on the attack. And again, and again. Each time, Paul's counter-blow came an instant late. And Jessica saw a thing she hoped Jamis did not see. Paul's defensive reactions were blindingly fast, but they moved each time at the precisely correct angle they would take if a shield were helping deflect part of Jamis's blow. "'Is your son playing with that poor fool?' Stilgar asked. He waved her to silence before she could respond. "'Sorry, you must remain silent.' Now the two figures on the rock floor circled each other, Jamis with knife hand held far forward and tipped up slightly, Paul crouched with knife held low. Again Jamis pounced, and this time he twisted to the right, where Paul had been dodging. Instead of faking back and out, Paul met the man's knife hand on the point of his own blade, then the boy was gone, twisting away to the left and thankful for Cheney's warning. Jamis backed into the centre of the circle, rubbing his knife hand. Blood dripping from the injury for a moment, stopped. His eyes were wide and staring, two blue-black holes, studying Paul with a new wariness in the dull light of the glow-globes. Ah, that one hurt, Stilgar murmured. 
Paul crouched at the ready, and, as he had been trained to do after first blood, called out, "'Do you yield?' "'Ha!' Jamis cried. An angry murmur arose from the troop. "'Hold!' Stilgar called out. "'The lad doesn't know our rule!' Then, to Paul, "'There can be no yielding in the Tahadi challenge. Death is the test of it.' Jessica saw Paul swallow hard, and she thought, "'He's never killed a man like this, in the hot blood of a knife fight. Can he do it?' Paul circled slowly right, forced by Jameis's movement. The prescient knowledge of the time-boiling variables in this cave came back to plague him now. His new understanding told him there were too many swiftly compressed decisions in this fight for any clear channel ahead to show itself. Variable piled on variable. That was why this cave lay as a blurred nexus in his path. It was like a gigantic rock in the flood, creating maelstroms in the current around it. "'Have an end to it, lad,' Stilgar muttered. "'Don't play with him.' Paul crept farther into the ring, relying on his own edge in speed. Jamis backed now that the realization swept over him, that this was no soft off-worlder in the Tahadi ring, easy prey for a Fremen Chris-knife. Jessica saw the shadow of desperation in the man's face. Now is when he's most dangerous, she thought. Now he's desperate and can do anything. He sees that this is not like a child of his own people, but a fighting machine born and trained to it from infancy. Now the fear I planted in him has come to bloom. And she found in herself a sense of pity for Jamis, an emotion tempered by awareness of the immediate peril to her son. Jamis could do anything, any unpredictable thing, she told herself. She wondered then if Paul had glimpsed this future, if he were reliving this experience. But she saw the way her son moved the beads of perspiration on his face and shoulders, the careful wariness visible in the flow of muscles. And for the first time she sensed, without understanding it, the uncertainty factor in Paul's gift. Paul pressed the fight now, circling but not attacking. He had seen the fear in his opponent. Memory of Duncan Idaho's voice flowed through Paul's awareness. When your opponent fears you, then's the moment when you give the fear its own reign. Give it the time to work on him. Let it become terror. The terrified man fights himself. Eventually he attacks in desperation. That is the most dangerous moment. But the terrified man can be trusted usually to make a fatal mistake. You are being trained here to detect these mistakes and use them. The crowd in the cavern began to mutter. They think Paul's toying with Jameis, Jessica thought. They think Paul's being needlessly cruel but she sensed also the undercurrent of crowd excitement, their enjoyment of the spectacle, and she could see the pressure building up in Jameis. The moment when it became too much for him to contain was as apparent to her as it was to Jameis, or to Paul. Jameis leaped high, fainting and striking down with his right hand, but the hand was empty. The Chris knife had been shifted to his left hand. Jessica gasped. But Paul had been warned by Cheney, Jemis fights with either hand, and the depth of his training had taken in that trick en passant. Keep the mind on the knife and not on the hand that holds it, Gurney Halleck had told him time and again. The knife is more dangerous than the hand, and the knife can be in either hand. And Paul had seen Jemis's mistake, bad footwork so that it took the man a heartbeat longer to recover from his leap, which had been intended to confuse Paul and hide the knife shift. 
Except for the low yellow light of the glow globes and the inky eyes of the staring troop, it was similar to a session on the practice floor. Shields didn't count where the body's own movement could be used against it. Paul shifted his own knife in a blurred motion, slipped sideways and thrust upward where Jameis's chest was descending, then away to watch the man crumble. Jameis fell like a limp rag, face down, gasped once and turned his face toward Paul, then lay still on the rock floor. His dead eyes stared out like beads of dark glass. Killing with a point lacks artistry, Ida heard once told Paul, but don't let that hold your hand when the opening presents itself. The troop rushed forward, filling the ring, pushing Paul aside. They hid Jameis in a frenzy of huddling activity. Presently a group of them hurried back into the depths of the cavern, carrying a burden wrapped in a robe. And there was no body on the rock floor. Jessica pressed through toward her son. She felt that she swam in a sea of robed and stinking backs, a throng strangely silent. Now is the terrible moment, she thought. He has killed a man in clear superiority of mind and muscle. He must not grow to enjoy such a victory. She forced herself through the last of the troop and into a small open space, where two bearded Fremen were helping Paul into his stillsuit. Jessica stared at her son. Paul's eyes were bright. He breathed heavily, permitting the ministrations to his body rather than helping them. Him against Jameis? And not a mark on him, one of the men muttered. Cheney stood at one side, her eyes focused on Paul. Jessica saw the girl's excitement, the admiration in the elfin face. It must be done now, and swiftly, Jessica thought. She compressed ultimate scorn into her voice and manner, said, Well, now, how does it feel to be a killer? Paul stiffened as though he had been struck. He met his mother's cold glare, and his face darkened with a rush of blood. Involuntarily he glanced toward the place on the cavern floor where Jameis had lain. Stilgar pressed through to Jessica's side, returning from the cave depths where the body of Jameis had been taken. He spoke to Paul in a bitter, controlled tone. "'When the time comes for you to call me out and try for my murder, do not think you will play with me the way you played with Jameis.' Jessica sensed the way her own words and Stilgar's sank into Paul, doing their harsh work on the boy. The mistake these people made, it served a purpose now. She searched the faces around them as Paul was doing, seeing what he saw. Admiration, yes, and fear, and in some, loathing. She looked at Stilgar, saw his fatalism, knew how the fight had seemed to him. Paul looked at his mother. You know what it was, he said. She heard the return to sanity, the remorse in his voice. Jessica swept her glance across the troop, said, Paul has never before killed a man with a naked blade. Stilgar faced her, disbelief in his face. I wasn't playing with him, Paul said. He pressed in front of his mother, straightening his robe, glanced at the dark place of Jameis's blood on the cavern floor. I did not want to kill him. Jessica saw belief come slowly to Stilgar, saw the relief in him as he tugged at his beard with a deeply veined hand. She heard muttering awareness spread through the troop. That's why you asked him to yield, Stilgar said. I see. 
Our ways are different, but you'll see the sense in them. I thought we'd admitted a scorpion into our midst. He hesitated then. And I shall not call you lad the more. A voice from the troop called out, Needs a naming still? Stilgar nodded, tugging at his beard. I see strength in you, like the strength beneath a pillar. Again he paused, then, You shall be known among us as Usul, the base of the pillar. This is your secret name, your troop name. We of C.H. Tabur may use it, but none other may so presume. Usul. Murmuring went through the troop. Good choice, that. Strong. Bring us luck. And Jessica sensed the acceptance, knowing she was included in it with her champion. She was indeed Sayadina. Now, what name of manhood do you choose for us to call you openly? Stilgar asked. Paul glanced at his mother, back to Stilgar. Bits and pieces of this moment registered on his prescient memory, but he felt the differences as though they were physical a pressure forcing him through the narrow door of the present. "'How do you call among you the little mouse?' "'The mouse that jumps?' Paul asked, remembering the pop-hop of motion at Tuono Basin. He illustrated with one hand. A chuckle sounded through the troop. "'We call that one Mwadib,' Stilgar said. Jessica gasped. It was the name Paul had told her, saying that the Fremen would accept them and call him thus. She felt a sudden fear of her son and for him. Paul swallowed. He felt that he played a part already played over countless times in his mind, yet there were differences. He could see himself perched on a dizzying summit, having experienced much and possessed of a profound store of knowledge, but all around him was abyss. And again he remembered the vision of fanatic legions following the green and black banner of the Atreides, pillaging and burning across the universe in the name of their prophet, Muad'Dib. That must not happen, he told himself. Is that the name you wish, Muad'Dib? Stilgar asked. I am an Atreides, Paul whispered, and then louder, It's not right that I give up entirely the name my father gave me. Could I be known among you as Paul Mwadib? You are Paul Mwadib, Stilgar said, and Paul thought that was in no vision of mine. I did a different thing. But he felt that the abyss remained all around him. Again a murmuring response went through the troop as man turned to man. Wisdom with strength couldn't ask more. It's the legend for sure. Lisan al-Gaib, Lisan al-Gaib! I will tell you a thing about your new name, Stilgar said. The choice pleases us. Mwadib is wise in the ways of the desert. Mwadib creates his own water. Mwadib hides from the sun and travels in the cool night. Mwadib is fruitful and multiplies over the land. Mwadib we call Instructor of Boys. That is a powerful base on which to build your life. Paul Mwadib, who is Usul among us. We welcome you. Stilgar touched Paul's forehead with one palm, withdrew his hand, embraced Paul and murmured, Usul. 
As Stilgar released him, another member of the troop embraced Paul, repeating his new troop name. And Paul was passed from embrace to embrace through the troop, hearing the voices, the shadings of tone, Usul, Usul, Usul. Already he could place some of them by name. And there was Cheney, who pressed her cheek against his as she held him, and said his name. Presently Paul stood again before Stilgar, who said, Now you are of the Ichwan Bedwine, our brother. His face hardened, and he spoke with command in his voice. And now, Paul Muad'Dib, tighten up that still suit. He glanced at Cheney. Cheney, Paul Muad'Dib's nose plugs are as poor a fit I've ever seen. I thought I ordered you to see after him. I hadn't the makings still, she said. There's Jameses, of course, but... Enough of that. Then I'll share one of mine, she said. I can make do with one until... You will not, Stilgar said. I know there are spares among us. Where are the spares? Are we a troop together or a band of savages? Hands reached out from the troop, offering hard, fibrous objects. Stilgar selected four, handed them to Cheney. Fit these to Usul and the Sardina. A voice lifted from the back of the troop. What of the water still? What are the Litajons in their pack? I know your need, Farouk, Stilgar said. He glanced at Jessica. She nodded. Broach one for those that need it, Stilgar said. Watermaster, where is a watermaster? Ah, Shimum, care for the measuring of what is needed, the necessity, and no more. This water is the dour property of the Syadina, and will be repaid in the Siege at field rates less pack fees. What is the repayment at field rates? Jessica asked. Ten for one, Stilgar said. But it's a wise rule, as you'll come to see, Stilgar said. A rustling of robes marked movement at the back of the troop as men turned to get the water. Stilgar held up a hand and there was silence. As to Jamis, he said, I order the full ceremony. Jamis was our companion and brother of the each one Bedouin. There shall be no turning away without the respect due one who proved our fortune by his Tahadi challenge. I invoke the right at sunset when the dark shall cover him. Paul, hearing these words, realized that he had plunged once more into the abyss. Blind time. There was no past occupying the future in his mind, except... Except? He could still sense the green and black Atreides banner waving somewhere ahead, still see the Jihad's bloody swords and fanatic legions. It will not be, he told himself. I cannot let it be. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. From the Wisdom of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. In the stillness of the cavern, Jessica heard the scrape of sand on rock as people moved, the distant bird calls that Stilgar had said were the signals of his watchmen. The great plastic hood seals had been removed from the cave's opening, she could see the march of evening shadows across the lip of rock in front of her and the open basin beyond. She sensed the daylight leaving them, sensed it in the dry heat as well as the shadows. She knew her trained awareness soon would give her what these Fremen obviously had, the ability to sense even the slightest change in the air's moisture. How they had scurried to tighten their still suits when the cave was opened. 
Deep within the cave, someone began chanting, Imatrava Okolo, Ikorenja Okolo. Jessica translated silently, These are ashes, and these are roots. The funeral ceremony for Jamus was beginning. She looked out at the Arakeen sunset, at the banked decks of colour in the sky. Night was beginning to utter its shadows along the distant rocks and the dunes. Yet the heat persisted. Heat forced her thoughts onto water, and the observed fact that this whole people could be trained to be thirsty only at given times. Thirst. She could remember moonlit waves on Caladan throwing white robes over rocks, and the wind heavy with dampness. Now the breeze that fingered her robes seared the patches of exposed skin at cheeks and forehead. The new nose plugs irritated her, and she found herself overly conscious of the tube that trailed down across her face into the suit, recovering her breath's moisture. The suit itself was a sweat box. Your suit will be more comfortable when you've adjusted to a lower water content in your body, Stilgar had said. She knew he was right. But the knowledge made this moment no more comfortable. The unconscious preoccupation with water here weighed on her mind. No, she corrected herself. It was preoccupation with moisture, and that was a more subtle and profound matter. She heard approaching footsteps, turned to see Paul come out of the cave's depths, trailed by the elfin-faced Cheney. There's another thing, Jessica thought. Paul must be cautioned about their women. One of these desert women would not do as wife to a duke. As concubine, yes, but not as wife. Then she wondered at herself, thinking, Have I been infected with his schemes? And she saw how well she had been conditioned. I can think of the marital needs of royalty without once weighing my own concubinage. Yet, I was more than concubine. Mother, Paul stopped in front of her. Cheney stood at his elbow. Mother, do you know what they're doing back there? Jessica looked at the dark patch of his eyes staring out from the hood. I think so. Cheney showed me, because I'm supposed to see it and give my permission for the weighing of the water. Jessica looked at Cheney. They're recovering Jameis's water, Cheney said, and her thin voice came out nasal past the nose plugs. It's the rule. Their flesh belongs to the person, but his water belongs to the tribe, except in the combat. They say the water's mine, Paul said. Jessica wondered why this should make her suddenly alert and cautious. Combat water belongs to the winner, Cheney said. It's because you have to fight in the open without still suits. The winner has to get his water back that he loses while fighting. I don't want his water, Paul muttered. He felt that he was a part of many images moving simultaneously in a fragmenting way that was disconcerting to the inner eye. He could not be certain what he would do, but of one thing he was positive. He did not want the water distilled out of Jameis's flesh. It's water, Cheney said. Jessica marveled at the way she said it. Water. So much meaning in a simple sound. A Bene Gesserit axiom came to Jessica's mind. Survival is the ability to swim in strange water. And Jessica thought, Paul and I, we must find the currents and patterns in these strange waters, if we're to survive. 
You will accept the water, Jessica said. She recognized the tone in her voice. She had used that same tone once with Leto, telling her lost duke that he would accept a large sum offered for his support in a questionable venture, because money maintained power for the Atreides. On Arrakis, water was money. She saw that clearly. Paul remained silent, knowing then that he would do as she ordered, not because she ordered it, but because her tone of voice had forced him to re-evaluate. To refuse the water would be to break with accepted Fremen practice. Presently, Paul recalled the words of 467 Kalima in Yui's O.C. Bible. He said, From water does all life begin. Jessica stared at him. Where did he learn that quotation? she asked herself. He hasn't studied the mysteries. Thus it is spoken, Cheney said. Judisha Mantine, it is written in the Shonoma that water was the first of all things created. For no reason she could explain, and this bothered her more than the sensation, Jessica suddenly shuddered. She turned away to hide her confusion and was just in time to see the sunset. A violent calamity of colour spilled over the sky as the sun dipped beneath the horizon. It is time! The voice was Stilgar's ringing in the cavern. James's weapon has been killed. James has been called by him, by Shai Hulud, who has ordained the phases for the moons that daily wane and, in the end, appear as bent and withered twigs. Stilgar's voice lowered. Thus it is with James. Silence fell like a blanket on the cavern. Jessica saw the grey shadow movement of Stilgar like a ghost figure within the dark inner reaches. She glanced back at the basin, sensing the coolness. The friends of Jamis will approach, Stilgar said. Men moved behind Jessica, dropping a curtain across the opening. A single glow-globe was lighted overhead far back in the cave. Its yellow globe picked out an inflowing of human figures. Jessica heard the rustling of the robes. Cheney took a step away as though pulled by the light. Jessica bent close to Paul's ear, speaking in the family code. Follow their lead. Do as they do. It will be a simple ceremony to placate the shade of Jamis. It will be more than that, Paul thought. And he felt a wrenching sensation within his awareness, as though he were trying to grasp something in motion and render it motionless. Cheney glided back to Jessica's side, took her hand. Come, Sidina, we must sit apart. Paul watched them move off into the shadows, leaving him alone. He felt abandoned. The men who had fixed the curtain came up beside him. Come, Usul. He allowed himself to be guided forward, to be pushed into a circle of people being formed around Stilgar, who stood beneath a glow-globe and beside a bundled, curving, and angular shape gathered beneath a robe on the rock floor. The troop crouched down at a gesture from Stilgar, their robes hissing with the movement. Paul settled with them, watching Stilgar, noting the way the overhead globe made pits of his eyes and brightened the touch of green fabric at his neck. Paul shifted his attention to the robe-covered mound at Stilgar's feet, recognized the handle of a baliset protruding from the fabric. The spirit leaves the body's water when the first moon rises, Stilgar intoned. Thus it is spoken. When we see the first moon rise this night, whom will it summon? 
Jamis, the troop responded. Stilgar turned full circle on one heel, passing his gaze across the ring of faces. I was a friend of Jamis, he said. When the hawk plane stooped upon us at Hole in the Rock, it was Jamis pulled me to safety. He bent over the pile beside him, lifted away the robe. I take this robe as a friend of Jamis's. Leader's right, he draped the robe over a shoulder, straightening. Now Paul saw the contents of the mound exposed, the pale glistening grey of a still suit, a battered leterjohn, a kerchief with a small book in its centre, the bladeless handle of a Chris knife, an empty sheath, a folded pack, a paracompass, a distrans, a thumper, a pile of fist-sized metallic hooks, an assortment of what looked like small rocks within a fold of cloth, a clump of bundled feathers, and the baliset exposed beside the folded pack. So Jamis played the baliset, Paul thought. The instrument reminded him of Gurney Halleck and all that was lost. Paul knew with his memory of the future in the past that some chance lines could produce a meeting with Halleck, but the reunions were few and shadowed. They puzzled him. The uncertainty factor touched him with wonder. Does it mean that something I will do, that I may do, could destroy Gurney? Or bring him back to life? Or... Paul swallowed, shook his head. Again Stilgar bent over the mound. For James's woman and for the guards, he said. The small rocks and the book were taken into the folds of his robe. Leader's right, the troop intoned. The marker for Jameis's coffee service, Stilgar said, and he lifted a flat disc of green metal. That it shall be given to Usul in suitable ceremony when we return to the Siege. Leader's right, the troop intoned. Lastly, he took the Chris knife handle and stood with it. For the funeral plane, he said. For the funeral plane, the troop responded. At her place in the circle across from Paul, Jessica nodded, recognizing the ancient source of the right, and she thought, the meeting between ignorance and knowledge, between brutality and culture, it begins in the dignity with which we treat our dead. She looked across at Paul, wondering, will he see it? Will he know what to do? We are friends of Jamis, Stilgar said. We are not wailing for our dead like a pack of Garvarg. A grey-bearded man to Paul's left stood up. I was a friend of Jamis, he said. He crossed to the mound, lifted the distrans. When our water went below Minim at the siege of two brids, Jamis shared. The man returned to his place in the circle. Am I supposed to say I was a friend of Jamis? Paul wondered. Do they expect me to take something from that pile? He saw faces turn toward him, turn away. They do expect it. Another man across from Paul arose, went to the pack and removed the paracompass. I was a friend of Jamis, he said. When the patrol caught us at bite of the cliff and I was wounded, Jamis drew them off so the wounded could be saved. He returned to his place in the circle. Again the faces turned toward Paul and he saw the expectancy in them, lowered his eyes. An elbow nudged him and a voice hissed, Would you bring the destruction on us? How can I say I was his friend? Paul wondered. Another figure arose from the circle opposite Paul, and as the hooded face came into the light, he recognized his mother. She removed a kerchief from the mount. I was a friend of Jamus, she said, 
When the spirit of spirits within him saw the needs of truth, that spirit withdrew and spared my son. She returned to her place, and Paul recalled the scorn in his mother's voice as she had confronted him after the fight. How does it feel to be a killer? Again he saw the faces turned toward him, felt the anger and fear in the troop. A passage his mother had once film-booked for him on The Cult of the Dead flickered through Paul's mind. He knew what he had to do.